And so our job is not to sit back and get in our head and try to win this war between the, you know, the voices in our head. It seems to be to go out and try to take up this purpose that God has. God seems to be very vested in the idea of, of giving birth to just communities in the world. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. I'm Kent. And I'm Nathan. We are seeking to recover faith, and we think we're going to do that by recovering the faith. So we're exploring the gospel and uh, in many different ways in this podcast, and to, we're in between series right now. We're going to do some one-off episodes, and we're going to discuss the broad topic of spiritual warfare today. Um, so I'm going to just sort of open it up with some questions for Nathan. I suppose we could talk about like the whole sort of history of spiritual beings in the Bible. Like we could t- talk, take really big picture spiritual warfare stuff. Um, I, I probably what's more pressing to my mind is like, what's the nature of spiritual warfare in the Christian life? People seem to have different ideas about it. Some people are kind of weirded out by that or have never practiced anything like spiritual warfare in their lives for dealing with their problems or their sins. Whereas other people are on the other end of the spectrum and they seem to uh, employ methods of spiritual warfare in order to solve all their problems. And then there's sort of everywhere in between. How am I supposed to think about this? Uh, Jesus was an exorcist after all. He was, yeah. You know, clearly. And uh, and I confess, I don't really fully know how that applies to the Christian life. Uh, we don't see that much about uh, the exorcism of demons, say, in Paul's letter to the Romans, which seems yeah. to be his most sort of thoughtful, systematic explanation of the gospel and how it works in our lives and what it does in our lives. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder where's the role of spiritual warfare or exorcism. Um, so I have questions, Nathan. Yeah, I think maybe you have some answers. I might have a couple. I don't. I probably don't have all of them. But uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Jesus seems to be in this encounter with the dark forces of the universe. That there's there are beings out there that um, we can't account for. That we don't really aren't a part of the natural realm, but they aren't just simply God and his angels either. Um, and so what, you know, what do we do with that? What does it mean for us? Um, good questions. Good questions. Mm. I don't know where to start most broadly, but, uh, I guess. Do you believe that, uh, do you believe the, the narrative that most Christians have that, before God made the world, some of the angels rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. Yeah. And that's where Satan comes from. Yeah. And the it's demons. Good, it's as good an uh, explanation as any, I suppose. And do you think yeah. there's biblical... Because people cite the, a passage in, in Isaiah uh, to say, here, it's right there. And I read that passage yeah. and I go, hmm, I don't know, maybe. That's the king of Babylon specifically. Isaiah 11, uh-huh. talking about Lucifer uh, being cast out, you know, and and Lucifer just means in, in the newer ones, Lucifer is just in the old English translations now means, uh, what, star, star of the morning, morning star, which uh, terms also applied to Jesus, uh, which is, mm-hmm. you know, probably not inherently the, the name of, of an evil being. Mm-hmm. Just um, an exalted being of some sort. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that several... 
even non-Christian, non-Judeo-Christian myths speak of some sort of a spiritual being or at least divine being coming and um, providing for humankind some kind of forbidden knowledge, you know, thinking of Prometheus and the fire and stuff like that, you know, and in the book of Enoch, um, the principal demon, he's not, he's not named Satan. Um, I think he's named Azazel. Um, and there's a nod to Azazel, depending on the translation of the Bible that you read um, in Leviticus, uh, the um, instructions about the scapegoat, mm-hmm. you know. So there, there seems to be some understanding of a of a principality, some sort of a higher being who had some sort of an interest in um, inserting his own agenda into human history, mm-hmm. and is condemned for that. And um, but is. Uh, I guess, had brought evil to humankind as well through that. So, yeah, uh, the word Satan just means enemy. Uh, The word devil just means slanderer or blasphemer. And so these terms um, are not necessarily proper names. They may be used that way, but um, we don't really know Mm -hmm. who or what these beings are or if there is a principal one among them and what his nature is. Um, <clears throat> you know, Christian experience would seem to suggest that there is a demonic realm, <clears throat> or at least a spiritual realm that is um, not benign, uh, a malevolent component to the spiritual realm. Um, surely, as you mentioned, Jesus being um, an exorcist and, and really the book of Mark records more exorcisms than healings mm-hmm. so uh the book and the book of mark is about kind of kingdoms in conflict that there is this um inbreaking of the kingdom of god through jesus and that means that he's binding the strong man as he says and he's spoiling the strong man's house so there's this understanding that satan is a powerful being or you know whatever this principal demon is and that um, he is being confronted by Jesus. And so, uh, yeah, we, we strong man. That, now that's something that gets quoted a lot in spiritual warfare circles. I mean, yeah. people who really want to practice spiritual warfare and see it as sort of the key to their personal breakthroughs in, uh, in life, they will talk about the strong man and binding mm-hmm. the strong man. Um, I've, maybe that's another passage kind of like the one in Isaiah that gets misquoted, misunderstood, uh, maybe we should talk about it a little bit. Jesus gives a story about how um, if you're gonna if you're gonna steal a guy's stuff, you're gonna have to first break into his house and bind him. Yeah. Uh, right. And he's yeah. and he's if because if, if there is a strong man in the house, then you're gonna have to tie him up. Right. In order to then plunder his goods. Right. Yeah. So Matthew 12, Jesus says, uh, "How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man?" And this is in the context the uh, Pharisees have accused Jesus of uh, performing exorcisms by the power of the devil. And he was like, dude, that doesn't work. You know, that just doesn't even make sense. Um, and then he says, he, he seems to be suggesting that the devil at, at least uh, is somehow bound or whoever the strong man is. I would, it, it seems clear that it's whoever is behind the, um, these demonic forces or whatever, um, 
and that it's whatever the Pharisees understood to be Beelzebul or um, this Lord of the Flies, that um, that's what they would call this principle, evil, mm-hmm. evil force. So, but yeah, and, and even other groups, like even as the Jews are in captivity and you see their idea of Yahweh in kind of uh, intersecting with the pagan concept and and they call God the um, the king of heaven or the god of the heavens and so there's this idea that there's an earthly echelon and then there is a heavenly echelon and uh, in that heavenly echelon there are beings that humankind might worship as gods that they are powerful beings that are in that echelon not all of those beings are necessarily benign and none of them are worthy of worship. Um, and then above that layer, there is this one that is called the God of heaven. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're the gods over the earth. Uh, and Daniel, and Daniel especially, would uh, cast them as these principalities. The prince of Persia mm-hmm. uh, is mentioned. So there are these spiritual beings that are assigned particular dominions. And that they seem to have a, a level of power and control that even this messenger of God, this man clothed in linen who comes to speak to Daniel, has to contend with this prince of Persia for three weeks before you know, coming to Daniel and answering his questions that he's held up mm-hmm. by this. So obviously this evil force has enough power to restrain or obstruct uh, a messenger of God for three weeks mm-hmm. in Daniel 9. So that was suggested there's something up there and something powerful uh, in its own right. Mm-hmm. So and, the biblical worldview, in other words, does entail spiritual beings, right? which yeah. would include demonic beings. Mm-hmm. Right. And Jesus yeah. came to deal with that. And Because yeah. we we're just reading about binding the strong man. Jesus is casting out demons, and he's implying that he has bound this strong man and is plundering his house. Yes, yeah. And I do think that there's something different about post-resurrection spiritual reality in that, uh, I mean, I, it seems like demonic forces continue to work, but as you mentioned in the epistles, it's not really kind of like a matter of housekeeping as Paul is writing a letter to these churches, and I could be wrong, I'm I'm open to being corrected on this, but I don't see very many instructions, and I can't think of any specific instructions toward um, any sort of kind of exorcism or direct spiritual confrontation with anything other than the call to pray. Um, And even in that, it's more a call to thanksgiving to intercession you know he he mentions all kinds of prayer and and certainly uh there might be a component of of asking that someone be delivered but it's almost like the assumption is that within the church that if you are among the redeemed that you have moved at least out of the unrestrained control of the enemy that you're not You've been delivered. Subject to his um, power. That, that's been one of my questions as I've thought about this. <clears throat> my question of Jesus is an exorcist. He's casting out demons. What does that mean for the Christian life? I have wondered if the uh, the point being made 
is that in is that in in his death and resurrection he has exorcised Satan. He has exorcised the demons, and that yeah. through faith in him, he uh, we've experienced exorcism. Right, um, and that's that would possibly explain how it can be that Paul can write these letters to the Christians uh, spread around the world and not <clears throat> need to tell them about how they've got to keep after the work of exorcism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it seems like. So here's my take on that passage. I think it's in Daniel 9 or 10, but uh, where, you know, this messenger of God comes, he's held up with the prince of Persia, and he's explaining that to Daniel. He says, hey, I would have come sooner, but, I, you know, I was with this guy, and, and we were contending, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it seems to me that Satan had a legitimate role in accusing humankind. That in Job, he appears among the, quote, sons of God mm-hmm. and um, presents himself. You know, God's not like, what are you doing here? You're the embodiment of evil. He's like, you know, God's like, okay, well, what do you have to say? And he listens to him. He, 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 it's, it's almost like he's part of God's court yeah, there in Job. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, it, it seems that here, this prince of Persia, who would, I guess, be some subordinate demonic entity or principality or whatever you want to call it uh, perhaps it had a legitimate case against so this is more not so much like they're grappling in a fight um but that they are involved in a you know in a controversy over whether daniel should receive this message whether humankind deserves to be clued in and so there's this kind of that Satan has a legitimate case to make so long as we are this fallen race, constantly proving ourselves untrustworthy. Um, but once Jesus joins our number and becomes our representative, that case seems to be lost, you know, um, at least so far as it relates to those who believe in him, mm-hmm. that, that, that the, prosecution has had to rest if you, mm. if we see satan as the prosecuting attorney mm. in the human courtroom mm-hmm. at, at least as so far as those who belong to jesus are concerned that you know the case has already been lost for him that we've and, been and paul acquitted. makes yeah and paul makes some statements <clears throat> to that effects in some places where he says where he's talking about the the death and resurrection of jesus and he says in that in in the death and resurrection of jesus god has disarmed the rulers and the authorities right seems to be saying what you're saying yeah yeah that they've been uh that they don't have a legitimate you know and we've talked about that in terms of um the elementary principles of the world and these systems of control and uh, law and order, I guess, if you will, violation and um, crime and punishment, all of that is behind us, if we would allow it to be. Uh, I, I think so far as we fail to allow it to be, like we retreat back to a law-based approach to God, then we do give ground. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we seed what has been gained for us, which is why that's such a troubling thing for Paul, why it's so why he's so vehement about that in Galatians. He's just like unrestrained uh, rebuke Mm -hmm. of this group of people who, by the way, were probably 
uh, as demonized as anybody you will meet before their conversion, just because they seem to have been in a place that a lot of people, good Jews, just wouldn't go, you know. Um, and case in point being John Mark, who, you know, they, they come out of um, Cyprus. They've gone across Cyprus. They've had a successful mission. They go across this little uh, passage, this sea passage, and they, and they land in Pamphylia, which is the very southern region of, of what Paul would call Galatia, the southern Galatian region. And, and we're told in, in Acts that once they made landfall in Pamphylia, uh, Mark left. <laughs> mm-hmm. John Mark left and went, uh, went back to Jerusalem. And, um, and later, as Paul is, is reflecting on his mission to the Galatians, and, and he expresses with some surprise that they didn't do anything to harm him. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that he's like, and you guys didn't even hurt me. And, and it's like, how bad were these people? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> these are the barbarians. Yeah. And so if they were under demonic forces, and, and Paul mentions that they were under the elementary principles of the world, and... Um, I, I don't think that specifically means demonic forces. I just think that the elementary principles of the world are um, these, that the demonic forces traffic in these. They mm-hmm. know them, they use them, they argue them against us. And so even Jesus in all of his power, pre-incarnate um, Christ, is not going to roll over them if they are observing these elementary principles of the world and if they are accusing us by means of them. You know, that he's going to work within that as well, so far as we're concerned. He's certainly not under them. He's above them. But so far as we're concerned that there's, you know, there's not going to be a violation of them. But his coming, becoming one of us, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit, transcending that echelon, this realm that we live in that's governed by rules that by transcending that himself now he has disarmed those authorities they don't have a legitimate claim they can't um they can't throw these things up at us as a as a violation so paul is so keeps making this case you know who will bring up anything against god's elect if god's justified them who's the one that's going to condemn them and so on mm-hmm. So what's the role then of spiritual warfare in the Christian life? Where does that leave us as we face, as we struggle, as we wrestle with sin, as we seed grounds, as we go back yeah. uh, into the old worldly ways, sinful ways, and we're, we're, we're seeking to repent of sin and yeah. get free of sin? Mm-hmm. Um, what is then, what are we to think about the role of Satan in our lives, the role of demons in our lives, and how are we to deal with yeah. that? Uh, yeah. Is it... Is it, is, it, is it proper and biblical to say, I renounce this satanic uh, force in my life, or I renounce Satan um, in, our, in, in our turning to God, in our repentance? Um, is it proper and appropriate to name spirits and demons um, a lot of people are into that. They're trying yeah. to figure out what's the spirit here, the what's spirit the demon here. Of fill in the blank, uh-huh. I call it. And, yeah. and what's your take on that? Yeah, my take on that is most of that is um, probably stuff and nonsense. Uh, you know, I mean, it, here's the thing is I think that demonic in- forces can have an influence in the life of the Christian, but nothing that we haven't given them 
you know they're not blindsiding us and if they did in some way it's not that we can't immediately take it back Paul, for Paul, spiritual warfare, uh, if, if we think of spiritual warfare as the means by which we get over our besetting sinful patterns, okay? Because that's really how it's used most of the yeah. time in the Christian life. Yeah. So let's say <clears throat> some guy, he's a Christian, and, you know, he really wants to do well, but he's addicted to porn and... You know, he's had several encounters. Uh, he's been found out by his wife. He hates it for himself. He's in the midst of despair. And we see somebody therapeutically, we think, here's somebody that clearly does not want to do this. And he's very troubled by it. And so he's obviously, you know, caught up in it. Um, now, there's probably some truth to the idea that there's a demonic force behind that. There's something that... Um, has a vested interest in keeping this guy stuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it could be that uh, a deliverance prayer or whatever would set them free. Um, could be. Um, but what I see in Scripture is, is two things. One, um, there is a call to cruciformity, right? Uh, that it seems that the cross is the lethal weapon against sin. Mm-hmm. Paul says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Mm-hmm. So that sin that had brought condemnation to me is now in the dock. It is on death row. That sin that was in my flesh is no longer this um, gang lord calling the shots, but it has been sentenced and is on death row. Now, it might make a phone call every now and then, you know, call up a minion, but ultimately, as I, I think that is a matter of faith, that spiritual warfare for us, practically speaking, is are we going to believe what is true of us already? Not so much. So when we pray that God would set us free from a particular sin pattern, um, what we what we presume in saying that is is that we're not free. If I say God set me free from this, then I'm saying you haven't set me free from this. So it's believing what He's accomplished in the, but that's in the, the cross. antithesis of the of the gospel so far as it's as it's proclaimed to me, right? Mm-hmm. That I am free of this already, and so I, I Paul seems to suggest that it is about believing what is true more than asking for something to become true. And if we ask for it to become true, we may give it more, more of a foothold in our life. Sometimes, well, yeah, there's a way of start. there's a way of approaching the problem that presumes that this uh, bondage has not yet been dealt with by the cross. Right. That I've got to deal with it, and by exercising the spiritual authority that He's given me, and I've got to say these certain things, mm-hmm. uh, these certain kinds of prayers uh, to, to deal with them. Your point is that right. God has dealt with them. the The spiritual warfare happened at the cross. Uh, what, what was the, the 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 verse in John? Maybe one of the letters where he says the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, yeah, in First uh, John chapter three, uh, he says that specifically, but also in the gospel, he says, you know, now is the prince of this world cast out? Right, right. Uh, as he's going to know. the cross. 
Yeah, yeah. He's saying now, you know, the time has come and the prince of this world is being cast out. Um, and so First John 3, I think, he, he says, um, uh, let's see, yeah. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Yeah, right. So, but then he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. <laughs> so <laughs> doesn't that suggest that we have to lean back on our nature, on what we are. And, and so, and this is why this has been my contention that we have to, we have to shed legalism. I really think that um, we're either free or we're not. And the more we approach our spirituality as conforming to biblical mandates, line item biblical mandates, the more ground we give up to the principalities and powers. Rule um, keeping. When rule we make keeping. the Christian life about rule keeping, right. then we break rules and then we're in bondage to sin. Right. And then we've got to find some way to get liberated from the bondage and we use spiritual warfare techniques to do that. Right. And, uh, you know, so Paul, this whole Romans 7 thing, right? And, and Paul's like, who will deliver me from this dead body? And then, you know, this, the spirit of lust, right? He doesn't ask that. He doesn't say who will deliver me from the spirit of lust. But that's what we would do. If, if we knew somebody that just couldn't stop lusting, right? I mean, somebody who's wrapped up in a, in a spiritual warfare mentality would say, uh, well, you're just, you know, you're afflicted by a spirit of lust. It probably came from your dad who was a philanderer, you know, and you were born out of wedlock, and now you, there's a stronghold in your life. And all of that, um, it really takes away the volitional component. Um, it... it um, minimizes or if not undoes the the deliverance work that jesus has already done i mean paul speaks of us as having been delivered now we are still being delivered but it is through the application of the cross to whatever you know that there is a uh, an application of this gospel faith in the in the specific and so whatever you seem, with. you seem to be referring to what I thought was going to be your second point, which is that we have to die to self. We have to apply yep. the cross in our personal that choices. Yeah. So th there's what Jesus did in the past to set us free, mm. and then there's applying what Jesus did in the past now. So he he died, but also we have to die. Right. Yeah. Well, the stronghold is that um, we put ourselves under the influence of the demonic forces when we resort to rules. Okay. So in Colossians 2, 20, he says, since you died with Christ to the, and NIV says, elemental, elemental spiritual forces, but this, again, is the elementary principles, the basics of the universe in the Greek um, of this world. Why, as though you still belong to this, the world, do you submit to its rules? So Paul would conceive of uh, Satan as the prince of this world, the ruler of the prince of the powers of the air, that this world, the entire world, is under the control of the evil one, John would say. And and so how does God set us free? He brings us out of the world, out of the cosmo or the cos cosmos, right? This this system that the world is running on. And now we're, we've been translated, as he says in Colossians 1.13, that we've been translated out of this kingdom of the world 
into this upper echelon. So if you're the in kingdom of echelon, the beloved son, the right, kingdom of God, right? Yeah. Right. And if we're in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is this echelon that transcends the basic principles that the world runs on. Mm-hmm. And that if the enemy is, or Satan, however you want to conceive of him, if he runs in that realm, he's the prince of the powers of the air, he's the god of this world, right? Uh, Paul says he's blinded the minds of the unbelievers, okay? But for those who've believed, we've been pulled up out into an echelon in between. Even as we have our feet on the ground, we are called to, to transcend this world's system, and so if we're not included in the system, let's just say that there's a, uh, the Attorney General of the United States, okay? And um, let's just say that I'm, I'm an ambassador from another country. I have diplomatic immunity. Am I afraid of the Attorney General of the United States? You have diplomatic immunity. Right, right. And, and that's what I'm saying is it's like if I spend a bunch of time and I get a big legal team and I'm just line item, the, you know, the attorney general of the United States decides he's going to, you know, he wants to slow me down. He doesn't, you know, uh, the, the president's like, well, I, I don't like that country. I don't like China and their ambassadors here. And I want you to keep him so tied up in litigation that he can't do anything. And so the attorney general starts hitting us, hitting us with all kinds of accusations, criminal charges and stuff like that. And we've got a huge legal team and we're spending a lot of time countering all these legal charges. Wouldn't that be a waste of our time if we're an ambassador from a different kingdom? Wouldn't we say, you know what? And we're not subject to that kingdom of rules. Yeah, yeah. Just take that file box and throw it over there in the fire. You know, we Mm -hmm. need to stay warm. I mean, it's just meaningless. Mm -hmm. But if we stop and we actually attend to those accusations, Mm. think think of all the damage it does. You know, now all we care about is getting our own butt out of a sling, and we're not actually doing the work we're here to do. Mm. You know, Uh, the... Spiritual warfare for the Christian at its base seems to be accepting that there is no condemnation and then turning our attention to Jesus to be conformed to his image. Okay. And do you think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 6, where he talks about take up the full armor of God? No. (laughs) Ephesians 6 is about our... Yes and no, I guess. So when you say, "Is that what he's talking about?" I mean, like saying, this positive view that you just yes. that you just described, right? Where right. Like we we live in the grace. We take our stand in the grace that we have in Jesus. Right. And we're yeah. focusing on Christ. You're right. Yeah. Sorry, I misunderstood. Um, so Ephesians six, we have to get this idea, and the fact that we that we've missed it, it, it's really troubling to me, and it's telling. I think. Ephesians 6 seems to And maybe be, let's tell our readers what Ephesians 6 is. Not everybody knows what we're right, referring right. to. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Paul tells us, take up the full armor of God. Right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and yeah. in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, yeah. that sounds like spiritual warfare. You're taking sure. your stand against the devil's schemes. Yeah. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Mm-hmm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Amen. Man, that's a great passage. Um, so I think what we've missed in this is that we think um, this is a defensive war. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in, of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so um, Paul doesn't just pull this out of a hat. You know, we've mentioned Paul. Uh, when we think about Paul being inspired, we we oftentimes think he just went and got like words and, and he's dictating them. Um, it seems to me that he is um, getting things that his insights are a um, the gospel looking through to uh, the scriptures and and for him the scriptures were the the Hebrew scriptures what we call now the Old Testament and um, so in Isaiah fifty nine he says this. Um, the, it says, the Lord looked and was displeased, Isaiah 59, 15b, second half of that verse. Uh, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm, now throughout Isaiah, God's arm seems to be a person. Right. You know, to whom in Isaiah 52, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say he, you know, and it begins to speak of the suffering servant. Right. Is this individual. And so he says his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, let me ask you, um, did God put on these pieces of armor because he was afraid of injury? Well, he was going to battle. Yeah. I mean... Does God need armor? <laughs> well, God wore armor. Yeah, right. But so what's the armor God, for? How does God wear armor? He doesn't have a body. Um, yes, it's figurative. Right. And, but, the, and the breastplate is yeah. righteousness. Right. And the helmet yeah. is salvation. Yeah. And and I don't think that... Um, uh, so this war, God's saying, I'm going to put on armor. But he's not going to. His arm's going to. And his arm is a human. Mm-hmm. And his arm is a human who's going to come and die for our sins, mm-hmm. right? According to Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, as, as this war is not over, like Jesus won the victory, but there's these pockets of resistance out there, mm-hmm. right? And so our job is not to sit back and get in our head and try to win this war between the, you know, the voices in our head. It seems to be to go out and try to take up this purpose that God has. God seems to be very vested in the idea of, of giving birth to just communities in the world. He seems to be very troubled by injustice where he finds it. And he is disgusted that there are nobody, there's nobody among his creation who's willing to take up the cause of the marginalized and the damaged and all of that, right? And so Paul is, he is um, 
counseling us to go and and or he's assuming that we are participating in this campaign and this uh, toward justice in this Christ-like war, right? That and he's assuming that, and he's saying that when we go and and engage in this war, that we're going to encounter resistance, and that that resistance is going to look like other people. That this is an interpersonal war as well as an intrapersonal war. But it's first an interpersonal war as I go out and I, you know, and I want to enter into God's campaign for justice. What I'm going to find is that there are people who resist, Mm -hmm. who, who try to undermine, who try to harm me, which is why he begins with the reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Because... First and foremost, this is a battle that is um, evoked between people. As as the people come at me, right? As I find opposition, as I go out and in in the um, course of trying to carry on God's business, I find that there are people who will slander me, people who would um, prosecute me, right? People who would try to bully me. That's what's that's what we're going to face, and there's so there's this reminder that that's not the enemy, but behind those people, that those people are still in the enemy's camp, mm-hmm. and that they are under the control of the enemy. And so, as I encounter them, my tendency in the flesh is going to be to, as as they oppose me, I'm going to want to reciprocate in kind. Right, get angry, hate, take vengeance. Right, and that's when I lose my ground. And by the way. I would re- be remiss if I didn't point out that that in all of the um, vitriol and the rhetoric politically in our country, the church has given up ground. As as we respond in kind, as we see the the liberals as our enemies, as we see you know Joe Biden as the embodiment of evil, say those who would see that, or you know, and we respond with this kind of hateful and disrespectful rhetoric. Um, and, and we feel, I'm afraid that many times Christians feel that they're engaging in a righteous cause, but they sure act like they're wrestling against flesh and blood. It sure mm-hmm. looks like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and, and if we believe that we're wrestling against flesh and blood, I would suggest that that is the definition of giving up ground of failing to take our stand. He says that you don't, you know, take your, uh, so take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. As soon as we engage in this controversy and this contest with other people out, you know, in the public sphere for the outcome you know, if it's anything other than the gospel of Jesus, and we're we're there to contend for the gospel, but not for some sort of moral agenda or political position, uh, and claiming that this is the Christian side of it and that's the unchristian side, we've already begun to give up ground. We've already failed to stand, and so the irony is is that so many people who are a part of all this vitriol, this conservative versus liberal vitriol in the world, are also the spiritual warfare people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. no wonder they've already given up ground to the enemy, so they've got a lot of pieces to pick up. 
Whereas if we would begin to take up this armor of God and understand the armor of God is that which we wear in a controversy with a, with an opponent, with a human opponent. Okay, so how how am I going to behave when I'm out and I'm and if we just engaged ourselves in gospel work, right? Mm-hmm. And we were just like, we're just going to bring justice. We're going to realize, hey, this country might go to hell in a handbasket, and that's okay because that's not our that's not our land. We're foreigners here, mm-hmm. right? We're part of something higher. Uh, we're not trafficking in these same things. And, and, and so as we go out to proclaim the gospel, which I think is the ultimate justice work that we can do, is we're trying to rescue those who would kill us, <laughs> you know, as we cry out to God, don't lay the sin against them, you know, uh, that there's somebody who stood his ground, right? Standing in the, in the gospel, standing firm in the Lord uh, right. and in the strength of his might and then our armor is this truthfulness and this righteousness in which we conduct ourselves. Right. So that's that will protect us. Right. Yeah. So let's just go through it and 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 think of these these elements of armor because I think sometimes we almost arbitrarily assign, you know, actual experience or whatever, you know, to these figures, these metaphors, right? And we and and it's difficult, at least it always was for me to try to really assign a real world thing to each of these uh, elements of armor, okay? Now, for me, and again, someone can argue with me, that's fine, but for me, when I think of it at, in the context of I'm having an encounter, a conflict with another person who is opposing the gospel, who means me some sort of harm uh, because of my work in the gospel, um, I be that this armor, the nature of these elements becomes much clearer, at least for me. Okay. So if you are, let's say that you're brought in by the authorities and you're being interrogated and cross-examined for sedition or meddling or whatever it is that they're accusing you on the surface because you've been working in the gospel. Okay. Now, and they, and they ask you a question about what you have been doing. What many people, what maybe every person is tempted to do in that moment is to begin to backpedal some, Mm -hmm. to minimize and to try to soften, you know, maybe you were bold yesterday, but now you're, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he says, first put on that belt of truth. And I, and I think that the first thing that all of us has, all of us have to do, if we're going to be involved in this war is commit to an unvarnished communication about what is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, have you been doing this? Did you talk to that person? Did you say this? Um, that if we try to minimize that or leave something out, if we're in trouble, that's just going to make it worse because the goal isn't so much to get ourselves um, exonerated in this moment. It is to acquit ourselves as his representatives in this moment. And so to stand there as Jesus did, be silent when we have to, but then to say, I think about Martin Luther as he's called on the dock in front of the council at the Diet of Worms. And they said, Hey, you know, did you, did you say these things? And they give him a big wide open door to recant. Mm -hmm. 
and he really could have, and it would have saved him a lot of a lot of pain and the fear of going to the uh, pyre, right, to being burned at the stake. And he's like, look, you know, I, I wrote a lot of things, and you can tell he he wants to, you know, from what we know of what he said, and a lot of it is shrouded and you know covered up mm-hmm. in legend. But if he said, say, eighty percent of what we think he said, it that it wasn't easy. He was like, look, I, I said a lot of things. I don't want to be a a troublemaker here, but um, I can't just recant all of them. Some of them are true, you know. Some of them are direct quotes from Scripture. I mean, you want me to recant Scripture? And he says, look, if you can show me where I'm wrong, I don't mind recanting. Uh, Otherwise, I'm bound by my conscience. And so here I stand. I can do no other. I, I think that that is an example of somebody wearing the belt of truth who's like, you know, no matter what the pressure is to fudge um, to try to create a narrative that the, the, the one who stands resists that pressure. Because uh, if you don't, then you're going to get caught with your pants down. <laughs> you know, someone's going to catch you in a lie. And now not only has, you know, have you uh, suffered, but then the gospel and, and its credibility. Okay, so, yeah, I just caught your reference, your, your allusion to the <laughs> right. belt The belt holds right. up the pants. You don't, right. you don't yeah. want to get caught with your pants down. Right. The belt yeah. of truth will keep your pants buckled. Exactly, right, yeah. And then the breastplate of righteousness, I, you know, that we have to have this uh, testimony about us that people have to know, you know, no matter, there, there ought to be this, I hate them, but I can't, argue the fact that they're doing good in the world right mm-hmm. and and that protects us maybe not from um prosecution or punishment in this world but it does protect us spiritually from any legitimate accusations mm-hmm. right um and then uh put the um what is it your fit your feet, feet with the readiness right. that comes from the gospel of peace right and so that one if you don't if we don't understand this as an interpersonal battle we that makes no sense at all okay here's here's what i see it to be okay it is the settling in our mind that we're not going to respond in kind you know it's, and and that takes mm. some preparation peace. ahead of time right if someone insults me i'm not going to participate and i'm not going to sling the mud back if someone hits me i'm not going to strike back that there is a prep but that takes preparation that takes me reminding myself what i'm actually here for Mm -hmm. and how jesus was and how he responded exactly right and so what about the shield of faith yeah, um, I feel like I missed the helmet of salvation. Uh, there, but, it's, it's, uh, no, it's coming. No, it's it's coming. Okay, yeah, shield of faith. I, I think that has a lot to do with these um, accusations, and are we going to believe them? Mm-hmm. Uh, Romans 8, he talks about, and I think Romans 8 is kind of uh, similar to Ephesians 6, but without the metaphor. Mm-hmm. And he just says, you know, who's going to accuse you? You're right. more than conquerors, right? right? Um, and so there's this reminder that though they— trump up charges and they bring up things and they critique us, uh, you know, and in the first century, what was it that the Christians were persecuted for? Um, They were persecuted for cannibalism because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their Messiah. And they were persecuted for incest because they married their sisters, spiritually speaking. Um, They were persecuted for atheism because they only believed in one God. You know, all of these are accusations that were made that are not true. Um, but if enough people say it, you know, then it then it can be harmful, I guess, to us, or we might begin to internalize that. And he's saying, 
you know, you can extinguish this. Hold on to your faith. Take the helmet of salvation. Oftentimes, I think as in Isaiah 59, um, your helmet not only protected your head, it said what side you're on. Um, you know, it, it was kind of like the equivalent of a, of a football helmet with, the, you know, the uh, logo, the logo on, on the side. side. Yeah, so I, I think that the helmet of salvation is is not so much as to protect our brain, but it is the reminder that this is what we are here for, uh, which is why it goes with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we've already said, I think, previously that the Word of God is the proclamation about Jesus, which is why the helmet of salvation and the Word of God go together, because we're not going to be dissuaded from our purpose. We are in the army of salvation. That's what we're here to bring. And we're using the sword of the spirit that is the gospel mm -hmm. to bring that about. And that sword is really only hits its mark through prayer. And so he says, pray, pray. So there you go. That is the armor of God. That's how we wage spiritual war. I'm afraid that in a suburban church milieu where it's all about trying to feel better and get through the day and get over my crap that we've forgotten what this passage is about. Mm -hmm. And if we were actually um, going out there and waging this war, this aggressive um, kind of warfare that, that God wants us to wage, um, and that we were inciting some sort of opposition, that this passage would become much clearer mm. to us. Thank you, Nathan. I had some questions today about spiritual warfare. You had some answers. Thank you. Uh, folks, if you're listening and if you got more questions, email us at discussion at faith, ooh, discussion at recoverfaith.org. Yeah. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.